You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. Your host is trauma surgeon Dr. John Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is a former Army colonel who served as director of the U.S. Army Trauma Training Center in Miami, Florida, and chair of the ACS Army Committee on Trauma. The history of trauma care follows the history of war. With me today is Colonel and Dr. David Burris, combat surgeon, trauma surgeon, professor and chair of the Norman M. Rich Department of Surgery at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome, Dr. Burris. Thank you, John. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's talk about some of the lessons in trauma care that are being learned or relearned in the current global war on terrorism. Well, thank you, John. Uh, as you know, I have a large interest in the history of uh, wounds and what we do and how it relates to what we've done in the past and some of those lessons that we can learn. For example, since the high-velocity rifle was invented in 1898 and high-explosive artillery was invented in World War I, the damage done to the bodies of soldiers who survive has been unchanged. Since our heart and great vessels are in the chest and abdomen, wounds to those areas usually have a higher chance of death. So most survivors have always had more peripheral wounds. The addition of body armor reduces deaths due to abdominal and chest wounds, leaving an increased number of survivors, but still with mostly peripheral wounds. Our current higher survival rate due to armor was predicted by Michael E. DeBakey at the end of World War II. He pointed out that we had not adopted the armor recommended at the end of World War I. Incidentally, Dr. DeBakey is celebrating his 100th year this year. Oh, and certainly on behalf of our listeners, we should wish Dr. DeBakey a happy centennial. Oh, I'm sure he would appreciate that. Well, as with all trauma, John, most injuries, even in combat, are mild to moderate. However, a few are massive with the patient hovering between life and death. These most severe patients routinely have massive soft tissue damage on a scale rarely seen in civilian trauma. Some lessons learned in combat may only apply to such injuries and may not be generalizable. However, for those casualties, John, to survive, it takes a coordinated care effort on the part of well-trained teams who have the resources available to make a difference. Well, let's talk a bit more about the, the path from point of injury uh, through the care system. Uh, if somebody is injured on the modern battlefield, what happens next? Well, the next thing, uh, because they're closest, would be either a buddy or the patient themselves or a, a medic that's well-trained uh, that's on the scene. And it goes back to the basics. Stopping hemorrhage is the number one thing that can be done to save lives on the battlefield. And the medics are trained to do that. Of course, airway and breathing have a percentage there that we see from our ATLS training. But stopping hemorrhage is clearing away number one. Well, just how long does it take for, say, a soldier injured on the battlefield to wind up at Walter Reed today? Oh, goodness. The best time that I've heard of was in the zone of 24 hours. Now, that's not typical. It's usually more like five days. But a patient that arrived about 36 hours after injury had had two operations in theater, one operation in Germany, and by the time they arrived, the family, who's accustomed to our instant society, had the question of, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long? Over 10,000 miles. <laughs> well, that would seem to be a, a major advance 
coming off of the modern battlefield, the ability to rapidly assess, resuscitate, and evacuate a casualty back to the United States within a short period of time. In that effect, uh, more so than any individual surgical technique or even some of the great hemostatic agents and other things that we can talk about later perhaps, is that system of allowing well-trained people that know their role in the system to uh, perform the uh, part of the care that they need to quickly and efficiently and then hand off to the next level with a smooth transition. What kind of system oversight exists now? Because this is a very broad geography covering a variety of different hospital-like units. How does one assess the overall outcome? That's a very good question, and it goes along with some of the questions we have in our nation today with handoff between uh, different residents, handoff between different staff as they change, because uh, eventually they have to go home, and even national disaster oversight for various areas. That handoff and the oversight of those handoffs is key. The system in place, the current combat, has a theater-wide oversight that involves a weekly teleconference from the folks in Iraq are included, the folks in Germany are included, the folks in Walter Reed, Bethesda, Brook Army Medical Center, where the Burn Center is, the Institute of Surgical Research in San Antonio, and 40 other agencies that are involved with, for instance, the approval of uh, equipment that can go on aircraft or the development of new uh, technologies for the military. All are involved in this teleconference weekly, and there's two phases of that conference. One can evaluate individual patients in HIPAA-compliant ways across the world to uh, ensure that the care of an individual patient had not suffered, or if there was something that could be improved, that information can be fed upstream or downstream to infect policy in very real time. The second portion of that conference evaluates system challenges that also could be improved to make new policy, new protocols in real time to save lives. Well, that's an impressive feedback and performance improvement system. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Strength to Heal, brought to you by the United States Army on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. John Armstrong, and our guest is Colonel and Dr. David Burris, trauma and combat surgeon, and we are discussing lessons from the global war on terrorism with trauma care back home. Colonel Burris, you had mentioned the importance of training. What kind of training is occurring both before medical units go to the battlefield and what kind of training is used to sustain their skills? Well, of course, each level of care along the pathway has different requirements for that training, but each would have an individual training that the skills that they were expected to uh, achieve are taught in both didactic and simulator style, and then, most importantly, team training so that people can function together as a team. The individual medic is taught to use hemostatic dressings and tourniquets in a safe way. Tourniquets had been decried in previous wars, but through safe and careful selection of patients and correct use of the tourniquets, lives are being saved in this current combat. They also receive feedback on their care. The uh, surgeon, my own particular interest, of course, 
can receive training in what we call the War Surgery Course, which is an advanced course that teaches both in a uh, cadaveric-based model and in uh, bleeding models that can train the specific skill sets that surgeons don't always practice in finding and controlling large bleeding vessels in a, in a rapid fashion. Then that course is coupled with a course for the entire combat support hospital where the nurses, the medics, the physicians other than surgeons, the anesthesia folks get together and work with people who have just returned from the battlefield talking over the lessons learned from the theater-wide system that we talked about so that they understand their place in the system and how to ensure that what they do can be uh, anticipated and understood by the next person on the pathway. We've heard quite a bit about some resuscitation protocols. What can you tell us about that innovation? The first step, of course, is what we've already already alluded to with the medics. Some of the hemostatic dressings are too fielded in the battlefield now. I won't go into the details of those, but each of those, the Ar- Army uses one brand, and the Air Force and Marine Corps uses another brand. It's important that those medics understand how those work in case they come across the other one, that they can put it on to areas where tourniquets can't stop the bleeding or they can't stop bleeding in usual ways. So that's important. The next step, of course, is when the surgeon and the trauma team in the larger facility with more resources get hold of the patient, and they have to stop that coagulopathic bleeding that often occurs with major trauma. At one point, we thought all that bleeding was related just to our resuscitation fluids, crystalloid and so forth, and there's a component of that, but some of that comes from massive tissue damage, setting up a coagulopathy even before the patient shows up to get any fluids at all or any care. With these massive wounds, John, that have such great tissue damage, that coupled with coagulopathy allows huge raw surface areas that can hemorrhage very rapidly, even without a major uh, vessel injury. And that is difficult to stop. So the protocols that we're seeing currently have moved away from crystalloid as the early resuscitation fluid, gone quickly to try to mimic blood with mixes of red cells and uh, fresh or thawed plasma that's pre-thawed before the patient arrives so that there's a mix of plasma coagulation factors and red cells that more closely mimics what the patient lost in an effort to help stop those hemorrhages. Factor 7 is used uh, extensively in these protocols and often even fresh whole blood. Again, some of these protocols seem to be very helpful in these kind of patients, and it remains to be seen if those will be exactly translatable to patients that have less extensive tissue damage. The regimental motto of the Army Medical Regiment to conserve fighting strength, uh, certainly for uh, the population in the Army, but most importantly for the individual injured soldier and sailor, airmen and Marines. Uh, Truly a joint effort. We have been privileged to speak with Colonel and Dr. David Burris, Chairman of the Department of Surgery at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences uh, and a combat veteran about advances in trauma care from uh, the current war. Thank you, Dr. Burris, for being with us. Thank you for listening to The Strength to Heal on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. The Strength to Heal is brought to you by the United States Army Medical Department, AMED. For more information on this or any other program and to access our on-demand features, please visit us at ReachMD.com. 
For more information regarding Army medicine, go to healthcare.goarmy.com heal to learn more. When we talked to Captain Ernesto Cardenas, an OBGYN in the Army Medical Corps, we asked him why he chose the Army for his practice. His answer surprised us. He didn't talk about being given an established practice or not having to worry about insurance, employees, or rent. He didn't say that he enjoyed having the most advanced technology at his disposal or being a member of one of the world's largest healthcare systems. Captain Cardenas talked about giving back to the country that had given him so much. He went on to tell us about practicing in a humanitarian mission to his native Colombia and the sense of pride he felt in providing free care to people in need there. A medical career in the U.S. Army or Army Reserve is rewarding on many levels, personal and professional. You can reward your career, your country, and your life for a lifetime. Exercise your strength to heal. Visit healthcare.goarmy.com heal to learn more. That's healthcare.goarmy.com heal.